0: Hello and welcome to How to Start Up, a podcast for anyone starting a company. This is a collection of conversations with people who've all successfully started, run and even sold their own companies, sharing not only professional but personal experiences on what we should be doing now, next or never. Hosted by me, Juliet Fallowfield, founder of PR Consultancy for Startups, Fallowfield and Mason. I'm delighted to be joined today by Whitney Bromberg-Hawkins, co-founder and CEO of Flowerbox and one of the UK's most innovative entrepreneurs. Following a career of almost 20 years working for designer Tom Ford, Whitney then identified a market gap within the luxury sector that she set out to fill. She established Flowerbox in London in 2015 and today Whitney's company is the leading luxury flower service, having had clients such as Dior, Louis Vuitton and is currently expanding across the US. Having just announced an 8 million Series A round of investment, Whitney shares advice on how to scale at pace and also why you should wait to find the right people to support your business. Hi Whitney, thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you on How to Start Up. It would be wonderful if you could start with a brief introduction as to who you are and a little bit about the business that you've started.
1: Hi, my name's Whitney. I'm so happy to be here. I'm the CEO and founder of FlowerBox, an online flower delivery company that's now available across the UK, Europe, and the US.
0: Congratulations, Whitney. That is huge. Because when did you start FlowerBox? I started it five years ago. What was your thinking behind starting FlowerBox as a floristry brand?
1: Yeah, so I started FlowerBox after working for the designer Tom Ford for almost two decades. And it was sort of two-pronged, the approach. But really, um, as a working mom, I was buying everything in my life online. I was buying my clothes online. I was buying my beauty online. I was buying my farm-fresh organic groceries online. But if I wanted to buy flowers, I could either go to an overpriced florist and get flowers that were usually you know, four or five days old, or I could go to the Covent Garden flower market before work. But there I was in stilettos and a pencil skirt, because obviously that was my uniform. And, um, just thought there's no, this is something, there's no solution for me to buy fresh flowers at, you know, with great value in, in London or, you know, in, in New York, the same thing, you know, I, when I was a student in New York, I'd go to the flower market, but it wasn't something that was convenient. Then also, you know, when I was sending flowers, I was pretty consistently disappointed with with what I ended up sending. You know, even if I spent a lot of money, it was never the right color, the color I had asked for. It was always sort of these weird mixed bouquets that um, were usually disappointing. So I thought, how come something like sending flowers that's meant to be like such a joyous and elegant thing to do, it was so consistently disappointing. So I set out to create A flower brand. Um, Like most things in the world have been branded and you get a consistent offering, you get a consistent ribbon, consistent quality, consistent wrapping paper, so you know exactly what you're getting. So I wanted to create a brand of flowers. Those were sort of the two reasons why I started FlowerBots.
0: So it was really a case of you had personally experienced this problem and you saw the solution and how to fix it. Why was it you particularly wanted to start it in the UK?
1: Well, I live in London, um, so it was very obvious for me to start where I knew. But in my mind, it was never going to be. I was, I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, did you always want to be a florist? And I was like, no, I, I never wanted to be a florist. And now more than ever, I especially don't want to be a florist. But um, I always saw it as a global solution, not just a, a sort of localized solution.
0: There's a lot of other founders I've spoken to who, when they introduce themselves, they say, I'm a founder, or I'm an entrepreneur, or I've started a company. Before they say say, I'm a CRM expert, or I am an architect, which is the core of their business. So do you see yourself as a business expert before you see yourself as a florist?
1: Florist would be so low on the list of what I am. And I, Actually, florist would be at the bottom of the list.
0: I find that really interesting because the bit of the job that I knew that I could do, IEPR and communications, now forms a much smaller percentage of my day-to-day than I really imagined it would because you are wearing so many different hats. You're doing website builds, uh, payroll. How do you manage all of those different tasks? Do you seek advice from a mentor or have you just learned?
1: I love that you said at the beginning because I keep thinking, like, <laughs> when does this stop? I love someone emailed me last week and they're like, do you mind having your assistant get in touch with me? I'm like, when do I get an assistant? Because that would be nice. I don't think it ever stops um, because, sure, I don't know, I'm five years in and it's I'm definitely wearing multiple hats, but I have, yes, I've been surrounded by really great women. I've got an amazing team. I also have a really great group of female investors who, you know, are there for advice. They're there for, you know, they're huge brand ambassadors. They're evangelical about Flowerbox and helping to spread the word. So I'm very lucky to be surrounded by a great group of women
0: in terms of when you first started the company did you resign your role with tom ford and then the next day start flower box or were you sort of mulling it over for a while was there a key moment in that timeline where you switched your businesses
1: no actually i had started Flowerbox as a side hustle um just to see if I could really do it. And I thought in my mind, I had this fantasy of I was going to keep my day job, keep my like fancy office and my nice salary, and then have this side hustle where I could sort of employ people to come and, you know, make flower box a reality. But it became very clear, very fast that it wasn't going to go anywhere unless I left my career. I also was pregnant with my third child, so I wasn't also going to leave um, you know, three months, four months pregnant. So I had my third child and then that I left and then I was full-time flower box.
0: Incredible. And how do you manage that juggle between your personal self and your professional self?
1: Um, again, I'm not sure I manage it well. Some days I manage it great and some days less well, but I've got an awesome team at Flowerbox, and I really have an awesome team at home. I have, um, a terrific husband who definitely picks up slack when I can't. And I have, you know, our nanny's been our nanny, for 13 years. So she's, um, since my first was born, so she's definitely, you know, the sort of third parent and, you know, it, the, but the juggle's real, obviously.
0: You've scaled the business very quickly in terms of coming from, from no idea to starting the business to it being a success and then an expansion. You've recently gone through a big raise. You have a chairperson on, you have a board of directors how have you tackled all of that? Was it people saying you should bring in these people right now? Or did you just know that that's what you needed to support your business? And correct me if I've got any of that wrong, by the way.
1: No, it's all it's all true. And you just know, I think I know what I'm good at. And I think it's also really important to know what I'm not good at. And know. you know, I have feel such a responsibility to my shareholders to deliver on this dream that we're all behind. So I it's so important for me to get the people in that can help me do that. So I think knowing your strengths and also knowing your weaknesses is key.
0: And from your previous experience, obviously you've worked from very prestigious brands before you started Flowerbox. Is there anything that you've brought across from that luxury sector experience into Flowerbox's offering?
1: Oh, every single thing. Um, I think, and that had never been applied to flowers. I think people underestimate how hard people in fashion work and people in luxury work. It seems so fancy and fabulous, but man that hustle in fashion and you know those weeks before the show and the long nights and the weekends and the you know endless 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 work so i definitely brought that sort of work ethic and hustle to Flowerbox. but also uh, arguably there's no one better to that at creating a brand than tom ford so i learned from him how to stay true to a vision how to be so precise in every single thing that represents the brand externally how to say no to things you know always say no to things that aren't right for the brand. So I learned so many things and and brought so many of those details to Flowerbox.
0: And that experience you have, I think it builds up your gut feeling, doesn't it? So when you're completely time poor in starting a company, trusting your gut feeling can be so important. And is there anything that you would go back and not do again? Is there any sort of mistakes in the road that you would like to have undone? Or is it all just good learning?
1: Oh, there are a million things I would like (laughs) to done to undo but then I think all of it sort of somehow in a circuitous way gets you to where you are but I've made a billion mistakes um and I'm sure I'll make a billion more but yeah I mean I, I think the whole road of entrepreneurship is full of multiple <laughs> little failures and you're like because no one's ever done it before so how are you meant to know how to do it that's the whole that's point a
0: really yeah. good point isn't it when you're doing something new that's never been done before of course there's no Bible to read, or, you know, someone once said to me, it's like, well, of course you've read all the books, haven't you? And I was like, uh, what books? I don't know if there are any books on what I'm doing right now. And someone else said, be okay with the roller coaster, which I, I know you and I've chatted before about this, that it, it really is a roller coaster. And do you have any advice for founders on how to manage that? almost anxiety around that.
1: It's funny, I was out to dinner with three founders last night, three female founders who are both who were all three in sort of high growth, super exciting companies. And we're like, there's no way to manage it. I think having a support group of people who are like, you're going to get through this, the same thing happened to me, here's how and here's how you can navigate it. And just having a sort of network of, of great founders around you that have maybe encountered some of the problems before is one way. I also think like fail fast, just don't hold on to things that aren't working, move on. Because I think especially as women, we try to like make things right. Or if, if it's not working, just move on. If it's not working with a person, you know, it's probably time to move on, not to spend three months or six months trying to make that person right or make your job right for that person. You know, it's just failing fast really can save a lot of time and resource.
0: And you don't have the capacity to suffer fools either, I think, where before you'd maybe have the luxury of a massive team, then things could get swept under the carpet a little bit. You are front centre at the coalface. You have to make those decisions and make them fast. Something in terms of the luxury flower market I wanted to ask you is about competition. Do you? I don't believe you have a direct competitor, but in terms of the indirect competitor from the external view, how do you manage competition or the comp set?
1: Um, I can honestly say I don't think we have competition because no one's doing um, any sort of online flower delivery at a premium level. Um, A lot of people are sort of in the space of like letterbox flowers and, you know, sort of 25 pound AOV. That's just not my DNA. That's not my nature. It's not something I would send to anyone. So I don't think at the premium level there is really competition. Um, And no one sort of has the obsession with quality and brand either that Flowerbox has. So I can pretty confidently say we're the only people doing what we're doing.
0: Which is great in one sense, but also makes it very difficult in terms of you didn't really know if it was 100% going to work because it hadn't been done before. But I think you probably did know it was going to (laughs) work. And in terms of your expansion, the rapid expansion that you've done into these new markets, for you, was it a case of it was an obvious choice in terms of the next market you go to? How have you tackled that?
1: Well I'm still tackling it, but for um me, it was obvious to, to sort of geographically obvious to to um, tackle Europe first because it's closer and we could leverage the same business model. Then New York to me was a very obvious next step, so it was just New York and We were able to sort of leverage all the incredible B2B clients we have, you know, like Dior, like Chanel, Louis Vuitton, Pommelado, like Cartier, you name it. You know, they were all our loyal clients across Europe. So they immediately came on board as sort of B2B clients in New York, which then sort of allowed us to launch in New York in a cost-effective way because we already had a business. Um, And then, you know, a lot of our clients are international people. They're people that had lived in London and are now back in New York. They're people with a house in New York and a house in LA. So the news picked up really fast. And like, for example, now we're in year one in the US and we're doing sort of year five UK numbers. So it's very clear that the brand has landed, that there is this exciting early traction but we haven't even, I mean, we're like a drop in the ocean, what we've done so far. So now that's the goal with the next three years is to really have meaningful growth in the US.
0: Recently, I believe last month, it was announced that you had an £8 million Series A financing led by Capstar Ventures. That is a big deal to any startup, must be game changing completely across the whole business. What led you to want to go into that Series A?
1: I really do feel like an urgency to do what we're doing. And of course, we could grow over the next 20 years and have meaningful, profitable growth and grow really slowly. But for me, the speed and urgency is very real. So I just want to move. And I have all of these ideas. And it's so frustrating to me to have ideas and to be limited by resource or limited by time or limited by money. So that was one of the problems solved.
0: The time is, for me, the most precious resource. And if you've got budget to recruit, to bring in the right talent to grow quickly, That is super exciting. So now you've got that sorted, you can just do world domination.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. When
0: you're looking for investors, do you have any advice of who to go with or who not to go with?
1: A hundred percent. Like that goes back to gut too. Like, don't take money from people that are not nice and that are not aligned with you. And it can be very tempting, and it can be very tempting when you need money. And I've said no now like four times to four different term sheets of many, many, many millions of pounds because they weren't right. They just weren't right. The terms weren't right. The people weren't right. It wasn't the right fit. And you know, I really, most recently in this round, there was. A U.S. investor that that was going to take the round, and at the last minute, I said no, and it was terrifying because I didn't have another option. I didn't have a plan B, but I would have regretted it for the rest of my life, and it actually would have made me not love my job. Um, And that ultimately, I'm so glad I didn't do it. But you know, there were moments, like deep dark moments, in the summer where I'm like, "What if I don't do this now?"
0: God, yeah, it's really the fight or flight moment of huge decisions but you're right you've got to think of the future you and will the future you thank you for that decision in that moment same applies to appointing your chairperson sir john peace who is former chair of burberry standard chartered plc and experience is there any advice you'd give people when they're looking for a new chair
1: oh my gosh endless advice so i was super lucky at the very start of Flowerbox Mark Seba, who had been the CEO of Netaporte, was our chair and really helped me sort of lay the the most amazing foundations to Flowerbox. Um, he sadly passed away, um, and for the past three and a half years, I've been looking for the one, and I have kissed so many frogs. There have been so many people who were t- like, it felt like dating, and you'd sit at the table with like, and you're like you don't even get me. You don't even get where this is going. You don't understand the vision at all. And then there were people that like were in it for financial gain, but weren't really in it because they wanted to contribute. Then there were people that wanted it to go mass fast and like, you know, splash prices. So finding someone who was completely aligned with the vision, with the brand that saw the same enormous potential that I see and actually has the skills and experience to help me realize it and help me build out the right structure to make it huge. Is I mean, it's been the most. It's it's been a full time job on the side, and I'm so 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 lucky um, to have found. Sir John, and you know, I think it's a really pivotal thing for the business.
0: Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it was luck. I think it's a lot of hard work. I mean, recruiting a is a full time job, as you said, aside from your other day jobs. But I'm really delighted that you found the one. It's uh, (laughs) talking about dating, totally
1: one, like (laughs) heart in the eyes, the one. And uh, what
0: advice would you give new entrepreneurs as to how they can thread sustainability or ethical practice through their new businesses?
1: This isn't luck. This is really determination. But from the onset of Flower Box, like sustainability was at the core of what we're doing. We have a zero waste business model, which I think is something we don't celebrate enough. So literally, we only cut flowers to order. And traditionally in the floral industry, like 60% of flowers end up going to waste and going to landfill. So we had from the get-go electric vans, which again is like super costly. It's not the most convenient thing. We always took the harder route because it was the right thing to do. We have fully compostable flower food. We compost all of our green waste, which when you're trying to to get margins, you know, early on, it's really tough to spend any extra money you don't need to, but we have all of our green waste composted. So it's really been at the core of what we're doing, which I think is great, because we're not now a a bigger company where we have to go back and try to weave it in. It's always been part of of our sort of cultural values. So do the hard yards at the start, so you're set up for the future? Yeah, and it's expensive and difficult and not the easiest way. I mean, you know, to send flowers without having plastic in our packaging, of course, there's a reason every florist uses plastic in their packaging. There's water and plastic is a good barrier for water. But we from the beginning, you know, we've used brown recycled paper, um, craft paper. So that's it's always been the sort of harder way out, but, but the right thing to do.
0: It reminds me of a colleague I used to work with who on Friday, she's like, you know what? Monday, Hannah is really going to thank me if Friday, Hannah does this today. And it's that future-proofing when you're tiny at the beginning to set up. And I've been doing the same with the the mission and the vision and the values of the culture of the business. We're tiny, but in the future, the work is done at the start. So you can can thank the future you. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And what is the thing you like the most about being self-employed or having started your own business? I
1: love that the sort of and the achievements I feel like I'm a part of them and not when you work for a big company I always feel like you do all these great things and it's never really acknowledged it's never really clear the role that you played in sort of the company's achievements I love that you know the achievements are mine I also equally dislike that the failures are mine, you know, so I think the ownership of the fate of the company is something that's hugely gratifying, also hugely terrifying. In terms of growing the
0: business, a lot of people have said to me, the sooner you realize you needed to recruit a team six months ago, the better. Do you have advice on bringing people into your business within your team on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, I would say the thing that's the toughest about business is people and just keeping everyone aligned, keeping everyone motivated. Also, there are people that are right for the A to B of the business that you really quickly outgrow that are never going to help the business get from B to C. So I think acknowledging that and not looking at it as a failure. I also think invest in people like if you have the resource, spend all the money you can on key people because they end up making it back. In droves, because they're they're experts. And at the beginning, obviously, you you hire the best people you can. I would have hired anyone that would come to act in and work with me. Those that those that you know that first year or two years, but I would say invest in people.
0: And is there any last golden nugget piece of advice you'd like to offer a new founder?
1: oh like brace yourself it is the ride (laughs) of a life but um ride of a lifetime um but it's definitely not for the faint-hearted
0: thank you Whitney so much for all of your amazing advice it's been fascinating talking to you I really
1: appreciate your time oh I was thrilled to chat to you I could chat to you for hours
0: if you'd like to contact Whitney you'll find all of her details in the show notes along with a recap of the advice she has so kindly shared Thank you for listening to How To Start Up. I hope these conversations offer you some confidence, encouragement and reassurance that you're on the right track. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it will really help other people starting a company discover it. I'm delighted to be joined today by Whitney Bromberg-Hawkins, co-founder and CEO of Flowerbox and one of the UK's most innovative entrepreneurs. Following a career of almost 20 years working for designer Tom Ford, Whitney then identified a market gap within the luxury sector that she set out to fill. She established Flowerbox in London in 2015 and today Whitney's company is the leading luxury flower service, having had clients such as Dior, Louis Vuitton and is currently expanding across the US. Having just announced an 8 million Series A round of investment, Whitney shares advice on how to scale at pace and also why you should wait to find the right people to support your business.